Hello and welcome to the stories that brought you here, a podcast dedicated to the stories of the people living in and around the Salish Sea. I'm your host, Chris Wakaluk, and I get to sit down in one-on-one conversations to hear the stories that brought people to this magical part of the world we live in, and also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. This time around, I'll be speaking with Madeline Emery, and we had a great chat in this one. Madeline talks about the process of building her house on Pender Island in the last few years. She discusses her love of pottery and how she first got started with that. She'll also speak about her involvement with a truth and reconciliation circle on Pender Island. As well, Madeline will talk about in depth how a suicide in her life with someone who was very close to her impacted her during that time and during the subsequent years afterwards. I just wanted to give a little bit of a heads up for people listening that the conversation that we have about suicide in this show may be difficult for some people to listen to. I think it was really brave and bold of Madeline to be so open about her feelings and process during that time. And I think Madeline and I both think that the conversation that we had around that could wind up being quite helpful for people. We discussed that and many other subjects in this wide-ranging interview. And if this is your first time here, welcome. If you are a returning listener, welcome back. There's lots of different ways to follow this podcast. If you want to stay up to date with new releases coming out, You can join the Facebook page that has the same title of the podcast. As well, too, I'm on Twitter at Stories Brought. And I have a YouTube page, The Stories That Brought You Here. All the links for those are in the show notes. And I'd like to mention that this episode is sponsored by the 2023 Trees and Transformation Calendar. Every year for the last few years, my wife, Geneva, has been making some incredible calendars. And this year is no exception. She has created 12 original pieces of art to go on this calendar this year. And it is colorful, it is beautiful, and it is for sale. So if you like calendars and you like staying up to date with what day it is, which I personally do, or maybe you want to help support this podcast, this would be a great way to do one or both of those things. If you go to the website genevajacobsart.com, and in there you will find the calendars for sale. Or if you look in the show notes, I have a direct link that can take you right there. On the website, you can see all of the images for the 12 months, and what Geneva has described this as this year is, be inspired throughout the year by the vitality, strength, and stability of trees as you grow, change, and evolve through another transformative year together. They each come on individual sheets of paper, so you can hang 12 months a year all at once on your wall, one at a time or three at a time like we do on our fridge at home. So thank you for listening to that. And now it's time for a little bit of music, and then my interview with Madeline Emery. Welcome to the podcast, Madeline. We're doing it now. Thanks. Okay, right on. We're live. We're live. We're live. And let's jump into the the first question that we always get to on the podcast. And that is, of course, what brought you to Pender Island? Yeah, well, in 2014, it was my first year of being laid off on a seasonal job with Parks Canada. And two of my colleagues offered these various rentals so I could stay in a cabin over the winter. And so I found one, I chose one of them and I put all my stuff in storage and moved and I had negotiated two months with the landlord because I wasn't sure what it would be like. 
So then probably about two weeks later, I realized that I could actually commute over to Sydney and in February when I went back to work. And so then I let my landlord know I'd like to stay longer. And that was great. And that ended up being six years at that place on McKinnon. Yeah. Yeah. And so had you ever thought about living in a Gulf Island before? Was it something? No. (laughs) No, I wasn't fully, like many people, I didn't visit the Gulf Islands. I'd been here a couple of times previous to working with Parks Canada. And then with Parks Canada, I came a couple of times. Um, just as a course of work. But yeah, it wasn't my plan to move here. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But what kept you? What made you decide that uh, to go from short term to long term? Huh? Well, it's so peaceful and beautiful. And I was renting on the water. And I met certain people that connected me in to the community. I'd say that's a big part of it. Like compare, I was living in a beautiful place in Victoria, like on Rockland Ave in an apartment. And uh, I'd moved around quite a bit prior to that. So it was nice to, and also I'd arrived there with like a carload of stuff. So I felt really free. You know, my stuff was in storage. I didn't have to think about managing all my items. (laughs) So, and it was a pretty funky cabin. It was owned by the Glide family. And Professor Glide was an artist from Alberta who came here maybe... I'm not sure exactly when, 50s, 60s, 70s. And he would come for the summer. And he, um, like, being in that house was almost like being in a time warp. And sometimes we see this at the nudie where things come in and you're like, oh, it's like my grandpa's basement or something like this. So it was this, like, really homey, funky, but also artistic place. And, yeah, it just really felt... Like I belong, not belong there, but I was like really comfortable there. And six years. And then this is an interesting thing that I want to make sure we talk about. So we're going to talk about it early. So (laughs) what happened after the six years for you? How did that transition go? Well, 2016, I ended up buying a piece of property, a piece of land, an acre and a half. And that I wasn't really planning on doing either. (laughs) But I basically had some inheritance from an auntie. And so when I lived in Victoria, that was from 2012, I was looking around and I just didn't find anything. So I kind of just looked here and this property just felt right. And I bought it from the Octorloni family. Oh. And as far as I know, it was in their family only since the time that land was purchased in the early days. And it was a field fenced in the sun, parts, there's some forest there, and then a place for a house. So it was just missing a house. <laughs> so I didn't do anything right away because I didn't exactly know what I was going to do. But then I was able to convince my friend Adrian that he would build this house and design a house. And so we started building it in, I think I got my permit in 2018 at the end. And so... That's a whole chapter of my world here. 
let's flip the page and go deep into the chapter here. <laughs> okay. Because uh, not everybody builds a house and not very many people, I think, do it as a single person. And so that's a huge undertaking that you went through and it's a quite a unique house. And so, yeah, I'd love for people to get to hear a bit about yeah, yeah your, your home and the process of, of building it. Right, yeah. I still can't really ha- use a hammer. But uh, I had to start from scratch. Like, I mean, in the beginning, the thing that kept me going was I knew the builder and I could trust that he knew what he was doing. So that was one thing. I had to go through something called owner builder, which was new at the time. And it was for people who weren't hiring a contractor because I didn't, wasn't in that realm of building. So the house evolved in certain ways and I really had a specific idea of how it would be oriented and, and I wanted something really, I guess just for me. So I was thinking, okay, 20 by 20 with a loft. I had drawings. I had drawings from before I even moved to Pender. Um, cause I thought about this before and I almost bought a piece of property in Souk. So I had the layout, wanted it to like have the sun go around the house and certain things like that. And, so we started with the plans and uh it turned out that there's a, a system called light straw clay that we learned about after the plans were almost done and that's a like straw bale house with a timber frame but it's some um, straw that's tossed in clay slip and then put into forms and as you put move the forms up it kind of holds like a rice crispy square so it's this straw coated with clay makes it inert and then you coat it with the earth plaster like you would with straw bale so that was um, something we added to the design and it's the kind of house where things were given to me like Josephine gave me a bathtub that I have upstairs and some windows were purchased on Usevic and Peter built the other windows and Bob brought the glass and I had a friend who lives in Souk who was my electrician. So there was a lot of love put into this house and it also evolved as we went and some curves came in to the design and Tim was involved with that, like saw some curves instead of having more of a straight, I don't know what you call it, but more linear. Timber frames are often quite linear. Sure, yeah. And the beams actually came from Souk and I used to live like, 300 meters down the road at a farm in Souk where these timbers came from. So I pretty much lived at one time with the trees. Wow. (laughs) So that's kind of cool. Like there's lots of uh, amazing, it's almost like, I don't really want to say magic, but there's some interesting synchronicities that happened with that house. And I think it was because of, there's a lot of trust and there was a lot of people were interested in helping and uh, it seemed fun. Not the whole time, but <laughs> there were some stressful moments, but uh, it uh, it's still evolving. I'm still working on it. I, I'm working on cob wall behind my wood stove, um, and that I could take pretty much credit for this one section I'm doing, but Tracy helped me with that, and she was very sweet in helping me get the glass in. I have this beautiful glass that light penetrates through over to the stairwell, and uh, yeah. yeah, I kind of took a leap of faith and uh also wanted to make something really beautiful 
because I think that's just kind of how it's nice to be near. I think most people that build a house want it to be beautiful. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's a, a huge undertaking. And to summarize in five minutes doesn't do it justice for anybody mm. who's building it, right? But yeah. the the thing that stood out to me that you said was a lot of people wanted to help. Yeah. How did people want to help and, and why do you think that was? Hmm. Well, I think like Adrian's been here a long time, so he's connected into many of the tradespeople and pals and such. So that I would say is one thing, like Aaron Grimmer was there the beginning and some other folks from that team. And well, yeah, Michael Bradley helped pull down the, uh, there was a structure up at the house site where there used to be an RV. So <laughs> early days, we were pretty rugged pulling down this uh, frame with a pickup truck. And maybe because it was a bit different, I'm not sure. Uh, it feels like Pender's very warm that way. Like, I've been really embraced by this place. I Maybe it's that's how it is here. Well, it is, actually. And I, I think that it's uh, is not obvious on the service. That mm. uh, Something that I had learned from doing the podcast is asking people, hey, who helped you? And people would respond, oh, my gosh, so many people. Where do I start? This person, that person. I don't want to leave people out. So, yeah, it yeah. is, right? Mm. And I, I think it's easy to uh, forget about that on, on a day-to-day -day basis. But when we reflect back and really think about it, yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. Okay, well, let's, let's jump way back into the past here. And and sure. go back into Souk and maybe we'll take a curvy, windy Souk road yeah. to get us back to uh, this point later in the podcast. But yeah, you mentioned Souk yeah. and your connection with Souk. And maybe you could explain to uh, us your connection to that place. Yeah, how I ended up in Souk. Well, I went to university and I got out and there were no jobs. and But I did find one. And then I saw an ad for a bus going up to Clackwood Sound. I was working at this place called Hills Indian Crafts. There was a bus going to Clackwood Sound for the protests. And I went up. It was a day trip somehow, I remember. And um, on the way back, it was a really moving experience. I wasn't there overnight or anything like that, but the police came and people sat to get arrested. And I didn't get arrested because at that time I was decided that I was going to work because <laughs> I was very poor. Anyway, we stopped on the way back at McDonald's, and I was just like, what? And I looked, and there was this other woman who had the same thought as me, because we were just back from a protest of <laughs> Clackwood Sound cutting down the trees. So anyway, we sat there, and we, I don't know, we got a chocolate bar somewhere or something, and we met, and she had decided she was going to go to an organic farm in Souk, and I didn't really know what organic farming was at all, and Anyway, this is when we met, and that's what she was going to do. And then later, she convinced me to go as well. And I wasn't sure if I'd be accepted there because I didn't know anything about plants or this or that. But anyway, so we went in 94. And just before that, I met this person named Joe Buck. And he was uh, living across the street. Uh, I was on McClure. And um, we met, and we had a really great connection, and he was going to go do the West Coast Trail, and then go back to Ontario. So anyway, I went to the farm and uh, started working at this farm. And Bernadette and I lived in a 12 by 12 cabin, a tiny house it was called. And this was a time when I was learning all kinds of things about alternative living, because I really, I grew up in a small town and I went to university and then I was sort of not 
really out in the world much and knowing all the all these amazing things that can happen, <laughs> different lives people can have. So I was learning about tiny houses and alternative building and Cobb, and it's kind of the beginnings of my ideas of what ended up being my house, really. It's quite remarkable, 25 years later. But anyway, Joe and I wrote like maybe three letters, and then he came back and moved on to the farm. Wow. Yeah. So we had the beginning of a love story, and we went to Halifax and lived there for a few years, and then I learned pottery there, I learned my raku, and then we came back, and uh, then, let's see, I was still in gardening mode, and he became an electrician. And we had a life in Victoria, I started working with Parks Canada, which was another one where I kind of landed there without plans. My friend uh, said, oh, here you are working in the garden and maybe someday you might injure yourself and then you're really going to be vulnerable. You should get some office skills. So I was like, okay, because <laughs> I didn't really know how to use a computer. I, I didn't have much exposure to one. So I remember one of my last jobs before, my third job was with Parks Canada for a month. And the one before that, I was in an office tower in the copy room photocopying eyeballs for like some medical medicor or something like this and i thought oh god <laughs> this is awful gross this is a, so anyway i ended up parks canada was like one month i was a receptionist but then it turned into a 20-year career but going back to joe we had a beautiful relationship and then in 2008 he suicided and uh that was complete shock and unexpected occurrence in my life. Um, and I kind of had to rebuild and it took me a long time to get on my feet, basically. I mean, maybe I'm just on my feet now, <laughs> but uh, I had to do a lot of exploring and inner work and, and healing and trying to work through what had happened. And also we had this whole life and I was like packing it around shedding it slowly furniture and items and whatever but i was managing quite a load of uh memories so when i came here like i said i came with like a carload of stuff and i'd already been like i took a year off i traveled over to europe and such and uh i was feeling quite um quite good in my new job which was park interpreter and that started to get, like i say in 2012 and um i felt like I was in the right place because it was bringing back anything that I picked up. Like on the organic farm, I learned about herbalism and more connection with nature and the cycles. And even I learned a little bit about indigenous things, but it was more with Parks Canada that I learned about the people that are from here that remain here and still feel deep connections and, and what connections were severed and worldviews and such. So I was really on a a lighter path, I think, when I was first here. Okay, because yeah. the path you were on prior to coming here sounded like it was pretty pretty heavy. Yep, it was. It was, um, I mean, it was heavy, and also this is when I started to learn about a lot about what could be called spiritual forces or spirituality, and um, beliefs about the soul and how it is to 
be on this planet and try to do the best you can, no matter what happens, and trusting that people will come, that come to assistance or share things or I'm not sure, but uh, yeah, it was it was like a strange gift to lose like lose someone in that way. Yeah, I don't actually have any personal experience with suicide, but I know a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that you wanted to speak a little bit about this, and I think it's a pretty fascinating subject to talk about and a difficult one to talk about. So I just want to be really tender about this. Mm-hmm. But um, so going through that experience and and being in a relationship and being the survivor of that and having, like you said, to shed a number of things over time along the way. If I imagine what that would feel like, it would probably just be awful and very difficult to to deal with. Like as somebody who's gone through that experience and and had some things that they've learned from it, that is there anything that you took away from that experience that might be of assistance to somebody who might be a little more fresh in that experience? Mm. Well, the thing I learned is that People don't really leave, whether it feels like they're in your heart or memories. There's also the possibility that their spirit can still connect with you. So that is something that people can either relate to or not, I would say. I definitely feel that, that for sure the memories, like I did get a a note. There was a note. There's not always a note. And, uh, like, I never felt that he did this to me. Some people were angry, but I just knew it was on a whole other level, and, and I don't understand what happened, but for whatever reason, he had to leave. Like, it was very sudden, and it came on unexpected. And But anyway, uh, the note was saying to remember the good times, and that, I think, is a huge message for any kind of loss because we can get caught in something quite ghastly or even just the sorrow of missing the person, but they live in the memories. And sometimes I practice just going back to feel a feeling of either what we were doing, like we did a lot of outdoor stuff, camping and stuff like this, or, you know, when I see other people happy, (laughs) it feels good to see that. Like people are in love. It's wonderful. So that's something that's a person could get in touch with. And I I sense that he comes in my dreams. I mean, that's just a almost a side thing because whether it's him or not, <laughs> I don't actually know. It's just like a sense. But yeah, I find that the message is to I don't know, let's see what would I say? Um because, yeah, now that it's been so long, like, I've basically been without him as long as I was with him. So it's it's a good question of, of like, I'm trying to remember back because it's less raw mm-hmm. at this time. Well, to take a little pressure off you, I think a lot of the things you just said were pretty amazing. Okay. <laughs> well, yeah, no, really, there were. There's there's a lot of great things you said mm-hmm. there. And and not to, not to put pressure on you, we need some advice that you're going <laughs> to give to people, help them through this. But... The the fact is, it, it takes like time. Time is an important component. Absolutely, yeah. Every year, like I mark it every year, March thirty first. 
I remember the 10 year one. It's like, okay. But again, it, it still does stay with me. Like I still have grief about it and, and sadness. But again, like, as I say, I've, I feel like now I'm on my feet quite a bit more. I've found my own personhood. And I think, um, when we were together, like we were very merged and it, we were in love and, and it, felt good but there was when i look back too it's like okay wait a minute <laughs> part of me was lost and uh so now i have myself in my entirety and um i'm really like embracing at this moment being on my own it's quite a privilege and i have a lot of time just to myself and lots of people don't have that and it's quite precious and like after building the house i felt a lot of um yeah, I, I it was a huge confidence builder to know that I didn't know how to build a house. I didn't know anything about construction. I took the course, so I understood like the nuts and bolts of it. But I like managed the project somehow, like different tradespeople and timing and, and also having patience and trust that things are going to be okay. Because when you're in the unknown, the fear comes in. That's the first thing that comes in. So yeah. learning to trust is what I learned from the house project. And I feel like that's going to carry me onwards for whatever else I need to do. It's funny because I remember when I was on the organic farm, there was a time when Mary had to go away and she ha she hired me to be the farm manager, like to run the farm. <laughs> and the same thing, I was like went in zero and then a couple of years later I was in charge of this running the plants and stuff. And I remember thinking, well, after doing that, I can do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so... Funnily enough, now I'm back on an organic farm working, so things come in cycles. They do. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. I like what you say about learning to trust, because talking about trust or thinking about trust... <laughs> yeah. Or, or, like, is totally different than learning how to trust, right? That's right. And there's something beautiful about being in that state of trust that really opens up so many more possibilities. It's true. Like I said, the the magic of my house, it wasn't magic. It was like trusting somehow or something, but it seemed magical. Um, yeah, and trust is like a feeling. It's something that I learned to sort of tune into and remember because fear does come in for most of us immediately. Like, it's like, what if there's not enough? Or what if I don't get there on time or anything? And the concept of like, things will work out or somebody will come along or many people can think of times when you're, you know, maybe you're lost in a city or I don't know, anything, any subject and somebody comes along and they just help you in that moment. Mm -hmm. Sort of like, okay, this is how it works. <laughs> so going more in the, the trust area, you, you need to take a leap. You need to take that step or just hold the space and see what comes. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Really. I mean, and it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing to practice. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's amazing. Trust. It's, uh, yeah. it's a super interesting concept. Just before we move on to a different subject here, I just wanted to give you an opportunity, if you'd like, to mention a few things about your former partner, Joe, for people who never got a chance to meet him. Uh, what, what was he like? Mm. Well, he had artistic talents. And he was Pisces. That's the first thing I'll say because people are always like, such a Pisces. So that, if people don't, I don't want to ascribe to all Pisces, but he had his own world. Like he was like a dreamy 
poet. Like when I first met him, he was writing poetry and he was, he was a few years younger than me. And I met him when he was 21. So we were like some young people <laughs> playing. And, uh, he's the kind of person that would just go to life drawing and he could do really great life drawing. And that wasn't me. Like I tried and I did some of it, but I just had more stiffness. So he could just do stuff like that. And he got a kayak and went out on his own kayaking. We got a canoe, and so we, he wanted to go canoeing, so we went out camping, and he was very intelligent. He actually, one thing that's pretty interesting about the story is near the end of his life, he was writing, he was writing a book of some kind of novel, and um, just, a few, I guess, a few days before he died, I went away and I came back, and turned out he was burning a bunch of stuff, so he, he did destroy some of his stuff, but he was really focused on Plato, the allegory of the cave. Oh, wow. Do you know that story? It it just came up the other day for me. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. So it took me a long, like I didn't understand what this was. And it was um, just this thing that he wanted to incorporate into his book. But then, of course, there was no written records of, of this. But when I was looking at it, I was like, oh, this is something I'm learning from Joe is because the story, if I just do it briefly, in case yeah. people don't know. Please. And I don't, what is this, Socrates maybe? No, Plato. So I'm not a scholar of this, obviously. <laughs> so people are in a cave. It's a group of people are in a cave and there's a fire and um, they're watching the wall and the images that they're seeing are reflections of the fire made by people who are controlling the entrance and the exit and the food and such. So they're kind of captive in this cave and they're watching images on a, not a screen, but a cave wall. And it's like shadow puppets. One per, and they're chained together. And one person realizes they could take the chains off. So they do and they go out of the cave and they're like, oh my God, there's like an amazing world out here. There's all these things to explore and discover. And they go back in and they're like, hey, there's more. <laughs> and they don't seem to convince anybody else to go back out and so for me that represents the the concepts i have about the soul and beliefs that i have come to that i can't not believe because they feel so right and i've had experiences that i guess validate that so he was like intellectual person um he just loved me so much that was one thing that felt really good um, seeing, I don't know, you know, I mean, you have partner and people see when you find your one, you know, there's, there's something about that that's very precious. And, uh, yeah, like we always talked that we were going to always, we we're going to grow old together and this and that. So him just suddenly disappearing was very difficult. But I remember when we were in Halifax, he was in university and he was studying, uh, philosophy and literature and he had a pile of books up to his hip <laughs> he had to read that semester I was impressed by that because I, I wouldn't have the patience <laughs> I didn't study stuff but I was more interested in sculptures and art and looking at pictures images so yeah it's, it's I have a section of or a group of friends who knew Joe and they're not here and uh it's, I did kind of want to talk about him because it's a big part of who I am, but 
he's sort of somewhere else. And also I find that we don't really talk about him that much. Like people can reminisce about people, grandparents or remember that person or, but for some reason it's, I think with the ending, it's sort of just the conversation drops. So that's, that's a bit hard. Would you like the conversations to continue? Well, I just feel like he's still kind of here with us. And mm. instead of being like, you know, if something comes up and then there's like sort of a change of tone or t not tone, but mood. And then we move to something else. It's like, oh, it sort of doesn't honor his memory in the same way that it could. But maybe I'll try again and see if it's different now because I... I don't always, you know, I don't see my friends in the Big Island as much, so. And they don't do it on purpose or anything. No, it no. It just hurts, I think. It's pain. It's painful. So, yeah. Well, I appreciate you talking about this. I can, I can't even imagine how difficult something like that would, would be to go through. And I know that you have said that it's it's been a long time since it's happened. Mm -hmm. Equal time that you've been together. But, mm -hmm. yeah, I think... Death is something that is is challenging under any circumstance. And exactly. Yeah, yeah, especially especially that one. It's and thank you for sharing that, and mm -hmm. thank you for sharing mm -hmm. some memories of Joe. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, you mentioned as well too on a couple of occasions the term spirituality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do I do I get spiritual? Do I get spiritual hey. right now, Madeline? Yeah, metaphysics. I love it. Yeah. But How do we get spiritual? Where do you want to start? <laughs> Let's start with what are you what are you doing lately to tap into your spirit? Right. Well, I'm really into astrology as people who know me know this. I won't give an astrology lecture, <laughs> but I find that it really describes the environment and I'm also very interested and drawn to earth-based tendencies or earth-based beliefs or a lot of them go way back and trying to remember some of these connections. One thing that's quite exciting, I find, is that we're having science explain some of these things that haven't been able to be explained before, but were known um, or believed, like communication between trees and other entities and energy, the energy of thought, like it can be measured in some way on quantum physics. And, and that relates into, like, Again, how I'm in the world, like I try to like be more in that trusting way or trying to be open to intuition, which is something that's difficult to explain, but it's a feeling. And like thinking like if I'm in the forest and maybe something pops into my head, it might not be from my brain is what, what I mean, meaning is it's, it could be a message from some other realm. And uh, it may not be anything complex. Like, I always remember one of the early ones I got when I was here was walk slowly through the forest. And it just came into my head. And it's like, oh, yeah, holy smokes, that's so simple. But how does it, how has that experience changed if I'm walking slowly versus if I'm walking quickly through through a forest or anywhere? Changed dramatically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm... I'm in with some people and we get together to honor goddesses and, and really, really 
earth-centered is all I can say is the easiest way to explain it, but thinking of how we are interconnected with all beings and things, and that goes back to the energy waves. Um, and so what, what I do impacts all things, and I'm impacted by things that are around me. So, again, choosing how best I can, like I'm not, I'm definitely have work to do, but how I go through the world and being open to receiving, I guess, information from other realms or, yeah, and it's interesting what can happen when, it's like being tuned into a different radio frequency. There's a lot of frequencies and people can tune into one that's common with a lot of people or find other frequencies. And uh, I've been using the tarot, which I find really, <laughs> it's almost, uh, I don't what's the right word? It's not amusing, but the tarot pulls out incredible messages for the person that they might need that time. They may not want to see that message, but there's always a way forward with that, even if it's a, a card that might be difficult, like the tower. The tower is a card of like a tower with people being thrown off it, lightning bolts hitting it. And so it's like your earth gets shaken and shattered. And it's, it's something that comes from the cosmos. It's lightning. It's not like somebody doing something. It can also be like this flash of inspiration that comes through. And, um, so nobody wants to know that their world's going to be rocked or the carpet's going to be pulled from underneath them, but that's the foundation for what's coming next. And so getting through that, remembering that there'll be something that comes out of the ashes or rubble. Always. Yeah. So it's kind of like being on earth, we're being tumbled around. Like it's not a smooth ride, no matter what. I was thinking the other day, it's like being in a rock tumbler bounced around and bumped around and then you come out with like there's some really smooth edges and <laughs> even seams that might not be seen special parts of a self nice unique to that stone right mm -hmm. when you said tumbler i was picturing more of a dryer a I mean, dryer like, yeah a dryer in there was yeah some, we're close yeah we're just like <laughs> eventually we get dried out it's yeah. it's pretty warm in there yeah. cycle takes a while but we come out all nice and fluffy yeah unless there's some static <laughs> oh yeah don't want that static yeah it'll zap you well how did you come into uh, a sense of engaging in the world in maybe a little bit more of a spiritual way because i don't know if everybody does or or if everybody does it's hard to say but when when did things start to shift for you and mm -hmm. start to see the world a little bit differently were you a teenager a young adult at some other time yeah i think i was always pretty curious about things like astrology and tarot cards as like a those are pretty like mainstream things people may have heard of. Yeah. I have Sagittarius as my opposite sign, and that's sort of the mystical sign where things far off are contained, the galactic center. <laughs> but so Gemini, Sagittarius, so I'm trying to integrate the other into me. So I think that's just a natural curiosity for me. And it's just part of who I am, I think. Like, I, I just want to talk about it. I want to learn more about it. I want to hear other people's experiences about it. Like, I heard about Findhorn, which is in Scotland, and it was like a parking lot, and person was getting information, like, channeled. Like, I'm interested in people that get channeled information. So that means, again, coming from another realm. And there's lots of stories of things that have become channeled, like the Sabian symbols, 
So anytime I hear stories like this, I'm just like thrilled and I want to hear more of them and discover these things. And even just the simple thing of watching wild animals like birds or even deer, just they're so in their identity of what they are and, and they're picking up things that we cannot sense. <laughs> it's pretty obvious, even our pets. Yeah. So I'm like, what is that? And, and like, how do I get some of that? Um, I don't think you get it by asking that directly, <laughs> but I think, yeah, to answer your question, I just, I'm just compelled to know about that. And it's, it's spirituality versus like religion. Like I'm not, I've never have been into relig a specific religion for myself. I consider it very personal. It's very unique to each individual. And also it helps. It really helped losing Joe because I had that foundation already a little bit. So I could reach into that, those realms and, and try to get a sense of some kind of solace with the eternal soul. A couple things just to mention. The first one is that uh, just before we started recording, you said, I haven't listened to the Robert Dill interview yet, but he talks about Finhorn Scotland oh, hilarious. in the interview. Okay, well, there we and go. if you want to hear some more <laughs> stories, there, there's one for you. And then I just did an interview with somebody who was a photographer and we talked about all the time spent out in nature observing wildlife. So mm -hmm. you just mentioned the fact that they're tuned into something different and how do we tap into that ourselves. And I think spending time in nature, just really being present mm -hmm. and observing animals, because uh, I know for myself, it's very easy to spend two hours in front of a screen watching a movie and be totally captivated mm -hmm. yeah. and yet really bored by the end of it. But when's mm -hmm. the last time I've sat and watched a deer for two hours? Right. Yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> what will we learn from that? Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And it could be even in a urban environment or it could be an insect yeah you know it's just wild to really take a look and just be like wow that creature is doing its thing yeah to me that's very moving and humbling i guess definitely mm -hmm. well so as as you move through the world and you are engaging with it participating as someone who is uh, on their own and uh Single is another mm -hmm. word for that. And mm -hmm. and I know when we talked uh, a couple of weeks ago, this is something that you want to talk about, the uh, the life of a single person. Yeah. And uh, you had some uh, thoughts that uh, you wanted to share. And I think this is a really interesting conversation. I'm excited to get into this. But mm. the, what what is it that is your perspective about this culture and society we live in and the perception of people who are single? Mm. Well, like being single... I wasn't always single and then I wanted to not be single, but then I came to be accepting of it, if that makes sense. So I grew into my thoughts that I have at this time and I found that um, it seemed like I was looking at my life or people were looking at me with a lack. There was a lack of some kind, uh, something missing. Early on, of course, I wanted to meet somebody else, but then the more I was growing into doing things on my own, it's like, well, this is all right for now. I'm not saying that this is how I'll be all the time, but I found that there's, well, there's a pressure. It's like, I didn't ever have kids either. And I can remember people saying, oh, you'll change your mind. And I was like, no, I've, I've, I'm good. I've already changed my mind. Like when I was a kid, I thought I'd have kids. So 
being sort of in the group that, you know, like people meet and couple up and that's great. And, but yeah, that concept of like, there's a lack or something missing and then trying to complete yourself with or through somebody else, like trying to find that person that will lift you up as opposed to start out on your own solid ground and then meet somebody like as an equal almost instead of completing. And I, I think that it gets sort of pitched that way because that's how I used to think or marketed that way maybe is the word or something. And then also I never was like, I'm not very much into uh, computers. <laughs> uh, now that I'm not with Parks Canada, I don't have a computer. I don't work. In a, I cut off my internet and I didn't want to get into the internet dating kind of thing. I know that some people have found people and that's great. Just before you continue, did you just say the words, I cut off my internet? What? You don't yeah. have the internet? <laughs> I've lived without it before. So Good for you, Madeline. <laughs> okay, job well Canceled. done. Okay. I did cut off my internet. I didn't ever have it in my house. I had it down in my studio shed. So I didn't actually ever have it in my new house. Mm -hmm. And so I was used to not having it. And I'm not like, won't have it again. I don't. It's hard to say. It's like, who knows what's going to happen. But if I, like, I go to the library, which is wonderful. And I do have a phone where if I need to look on something, I can look it up. But I guess that's pretty radical. It doesn't feel very radical to me at all. Just because right now I'm mostly outside and I live in a place where I can find my friends pretty easy and physically, in physical form. And I know people need internet for work or school or all these things. So I maybe I'm just lucky that I can do that and live with less of a a digital influence. I'm going to call you a lucky radical. A lucky radical, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, it's it's great. It's yeah. great. But I interjected there and you were That's okay. Yeah, it's it's the opportunity to get to know myself and and even like which I didn't realize was happening, but like, what does it mean to fall in love with yourself, to love yourself? Do people love themselves? It's not obvious what it feels like to do that. So that's been something that's been coming out of this times on my own. And I don't even think I realize how lucky I am, how much time I have to myself. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to think about that other person all the time. And I actually think that maybe some people have little arguments about little things like where how you do the dishes or leave the cloth in the sink or some little things like this. And so I, I just don't have to deal with those things. I have other things that are um, part of being on your own. But um, I definitely don't feel lonely. There's no way. Like, I could have more time to myself, in fact. That'd be all right. <laughs> <laughs> I love the phrase you just said, what does it mean to fall in love with yourself? What does that mean to fall in love yeah. with yourself? Uh, I think it means a lot, actually. Yeah. yeah. Well, we we do unconsciously or get trained to like worry about what other people think, mm -hmm. and that's a trap because you you're the only judge of yourself. Like, shouldn't be judging other people really, but I'm the only judge of myself, and I need to decide if this is this is something that's lined up with who I want to be, like through my heart. Or like being a, a nice person or or choosing things that are what I want to be doing. Like even if I decide what I'm going to do that day, 
I may think, oh, I should work because I need to earn money to pay bills. But then it's like, well, maybe I really need to be in my own garden or make some art, which I haven't been getting to make the art, but I am building a huge cob wall. So that's my sculpture. But yeah, the privilege, it's not um, advertised. <laughs> yeah, and and if it is advertised, it's usually not advertised very well. Mm-hmm. But uh, you mentioned that you don't have a chance to do your art, and oh. uh, I know I know where your art is, but uh, it's pottery for the most part. And do you want to share about how you got involved in pottery? And yeah, yeah, it's I when we lived in Halifax, I got to line or sign up for a not adult ed, but extra. Oh, what's it called when you take a like a night course at NASCAD? And they had this amazing pottery studio where we had access 24 hours. 24 hours. They had a tech. Yeah, like I had the same access as the actual art students. Because I already had done, I did a degree at UVic in French and art history. So continuing it, that's the word. Anyway, so I started there like in the most deluxe opportunity because I could try everything. And they had all the different stains and maiolica and different kinds of glazes and text that mixed it all up. So that's how I started. And I did learn Raku there. And um, that was really fascinating to me that it's like an alchemical experiment. You don't know what you're going to get. And there's a lot of excitement in pulling the pieces out when it's hot. And uh, you can do it as a group. So that's quite neat. And then when I li- we lived in Victoria, I was part of Exchanges, which is an artist co-op. In It was in Vic West back then, but I think it's moved. And there was a group pottery studio there, so I met people that I still know at that time. And pottery is not the easiest hobby to have or art form, because you need kilns and it's dusty. And so I've had gaps in when I'm doing it, but I do have everything. And I did I did a Raku course this spring for with Ptarmigan. I had 10 students. So that was fun. We had We had really good firing. In April, and then it got really hot, so I didn't. But it's it's coming. I'll get there. I'll get back to it. And I've been making well one pottery project I started a long time ago that still goes on. It's not Raku, but it's um I make these bears, grizzly bears, and it started in two thousand and four. And I was I had bears come in my dreams when I lived on the farm and I, so I just started to be like, Oh, what does that mean? You know, like what does bear mean in anything? So I started reading about them and I learned about the trophy hunt in BC. And uh, at that time it was like a lottery, but 250 could be killed every year legally in BC. And I was just like, Oh my God, I felt so awful. And, and I'm hearing about them being killed on roads and this stuff. So I, I got this idea. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to make a bear for everyone that gets killed. So I called it Bear Reincarnate. Wow. And I um, was part of exchanges, and we always had a, a show at the Community Arts Council in Victoria. So I managed to make 250 of these little grizzly bears in stoneware and got a piece of plywood and put the map of BC, painted it, and then put them on there. And then that showed how many every year were killed. Powerful. Wow. And uh, I started that project and I kept making them. Like I've made hundreds and hundreds of them. And they're, some of them are like in France and some Ottawa, <laughs> Hawaii. They've, they've been sent around, but it felt like 
a very um, powerful project. And over the years, like some good news has happened, which like Rain Coast, they bought some of the hunting licenses, big portion of them up near the rainforest. And so there's less being hunted. But as far as I know, it's still something legal. So this is a trophy hunt for grizzly bears. Yeah. It's not like for food or, or for some other use for these bears. And that was um, quite the project. And then I started making polar bears for climate justice. So those are at Talisman. And I tended to want people, again, to understand that we're all in- interconnected and that, like, to learn more about their how they live and um, I learned about Charlie Russell, who's a bear researcher. He's passed on now, but he and I actually became friends. And he, at a time, lived in Russia with bears and reintroduced them into the wild. And he found these amazing creatures that are very tolerant of people. And they end up with behaviors that we think of them because they get mistreated. So he was teaching us what is possible. He wasn't ever saying, anybody can go and do this. but like it's possible to live more harmoniously with nature and with other beings. So that was a special friendship I had. And uh, he was a bit older and he passed away. He lived near Waterton, but he was kind of controversial. And I remember when I first wrote to him, he was surprised because I, I said I work, I'm the receptionist at Parks Canada. And he's like, Parks Canada won't talk to me. <laughs> but by the end, he was working with the the human they called them human wildlife conflict, but I think they changed that to harmonious living with carnivores or something, the, the title. But there was a mind shift as to how we can respectfully interact with other creatures. And it's about understanding what they need. and They need respect and, and space. And because we are in awe of them, like we get compelled. We want like people, there's bear jams on the highway because people want to be close to a bear. Yeah. Like they're just, same with the orcas. If you ever, anywhere, when you hear those orcas breathing, it just like goes right through my body. Even if, like when I'm on the shore, especially. Haven't been on the water for a long time, but there's something about a wild animal that we want. Totally. The freedom. The freedom. Takes a soulless person to not be affected by an orca. Mm. <laughs> Mm. Yeah. If you're on a BC ferry, everybody runs over to see where they yeah. are when they announce them. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. You know, okay, so that's really amazing what you're saying about doing the pottery and then being inspired about wanting to create these bears because of the feelings that you had about hearing about the trophy hunt and then connecting with this individual. He said it was Charlie. Charlie Russell. And and then having an experience through him and uh Anyway, I, I was just thinking about how that's incredible, how when we tap in and utilize our creativity in one way and then align it with our passions, we can have some really interesting experiences. Like it sounded like you had Charlie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was unreal. He's written books and like people can look up Grizzly Heart. And uh, he wasn't the guy who went to Alaska and got killed by the bear. <laughs> That guy had other techniques, and Charlie wrote about that. He, he wrote about it because it was a bit of a different approach. wasn't the same, but, um, yeah, that was a very special project that 
just evolved. And it's like, that was 20, 2004. Hmm. So I don't know how many years. I was... 18. Yeah. What is it about pottery that you really enjoy? Ah, well, I love feeling the clay. Like I'm also a gardener. So it's the earth connection maybe and sculpting I really like. I find it really meditative. I also have a wheel. So then I throw and like to make bowls can eat out of it's pretty neat and i really like glazing make moan glazes and they melt <laughs> so you get patterns and uh colors mixing that i find really beautiful they don't always turn out beautiful but i'd say that's the main and also there's so many potters everywhere i go there's potters so i find that really cool don't always know but there they are <laughs> <laughs> there's there's always potters so so the idea about uh making your own glaze and and having the colors and and touching the clay and everything is there some sort of a feeling that you have that this goes deep within you is this from a past life if you believe in such things is like what is it how does it really resonate with you hmm. well i do believe in past lives um I don't, I mean, I don't know. I haven't thought about that in that way. Like if it comes from through my ancestors or something, I will say though that I saw a, a bowl. It was in a, like an art museum in London and it was from the 12th century and it looked like one of my pots. <laughs> I was like, I took a picture, but no, I don't, I don't think anything comes from, it's another thing I've, I always wanted to do. So I think the sculpting is the bigger draw for me as far as a compulsion because really like I can make something. I can make anything. A friend of mine, Mark, in, in Halifax, I met him at doing pottery and he he's Filipino and he was making at the time these large boats and he filled them with people and he said, I'm populating and it always stuck with me. Like, I think there's even a story of the first humans were made out of clay. I'm not They're, sure exactly where it origins, but it could be Central America or, or something like that. But maybe it just goes way back in our collective unconscious. I don't know. Yeah. Because there's always been pottery. Like there's there's ancient shards and ancient bowls and it's part of who we are really as humans. Can you remember at all, potentially, or maybe not, the difference between thinking about doing pottery and maybe the first time that you touched clay? Was there some sort of a moment that happened? Because I've never actually touched wet clay before. But oh, just right. as you were speaking uh, and saying how far back it goes, I think, huh. Huh, I wonder I wonder huh. if there'd be some sort of a moment when you're interacting with that. Or is it just something that you just, you just knew? I got to do right. this. I got to get my hands on this. Well... Two young memories would be, I grew up in Windermere, and there was a lake, Lake Windermere, and there was like what we called quicksand, and it was like clay, muddy, sticky stuff, and we'd sort of like make things out of it, bowls and stuff like that. And then we also went to the paint pots, which is in Kootenai National Park, I think, or Yoho, and it's um, a deposit of rich iron rich clay and it's a sacred site to the tanaka and we went there as kids right so that would be early times that i touch clay <laughs> but yeah i really think the thing about clay too is its properties like 
if you work it properly, it can really hold different forms, like very fine, thin, or if you attach things properly, then it can really fuse on, in a small way. And so the flexibility of it as a material is fascinating too. And trying to find that sweet spot as you sculpt to make sure it's not going to break mm. is a good challenge. And um, it's quite remarkable how strong it can be or how fragile. I think I remember that was fun learning, like make something I really love, but then the leg falls off, for example. (laughs) (laughs) Start again. Start again. Yeah. You certainly learn to let go. Like really, I don't have anything until it's out of the kiln. Like I can make this beautiful thing, bisque fire it, and then put the glaze on, and then it's trash. Yeah. So that's a good learning experience too. It's just... That's a cultivating a sense of surrender. Yep. That's a good word. Yeah. yeah. You were saying earlier you don't have a lot of time to work on your art because you're too busy right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, other than working on the house, what are you busy on? Well, I am working at Wilderwood Organic Farm, which is uh, formerly a hops farm, or still is, but was known as the hops farm, but there's new owners. And we're growing tons of vegetables. Um, We're just at the end of harvesting the potatoes. I started there in March. And then I also have other clients. Sounds funny to say clients, but people's gardens I work in. And I really enjoy that as well. And that's more like flower beds. And um, also working at Hope Bay, working to rewild, put some more native plants there because they have a lot of native plants. And it'd be nice to bring some more back some of the blooming bloomers. So I'm busy outside with my hands in the dirt. <laughs> and you were also saying before that going full circle from that experience of working on the organic farm mm-hmm. in Souk and then to the present day where you're spending most of your time or a yeah. large percentage of it outdoors working with your hands in the soil there. Yeah. Yeah, does, 25 how- years later. So wild. Go full circle. And I love it. Like, I remember when I first went to the farm, even though it wasn't familiar, I just felt like, oh, my gosh, can I just do this, like, grow food? (laughs) And I got enchanted by seeds, like the power of a seed, many things in the herbalism. So it's, it's very rewarding to be there, especially now, like, living on an island. Like, I lived in Souk on an island, but this is a smaller island. And the more we can have here, we don't have to get from somewhere else. Just makes sense. So that's fantastic. Yeah. And so making the transition from uh, retiring from parks and then taking up these jobs and then not having to be on a computer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's felt good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. I, I uh, took a leap and I landed in the garden. <laughs> <laughs> Job so, well kind of similar. I was out in the forest before when I wasn't on the computer with Parks, but, you know, I was still connecting with nature, so. Is is there anything that you would say that you've learned about yourself in this last year? I know that it's common for us to uh, sort of go through life and maybe not spend a lot of time in reflection or 
or put words to things, but it seems like there's been a lot of transitions, uh, not just in this year, but in the, the last number of years for you, you know, with starting the build of the house and change employment. And what have you been learning about yourself during this time that really stands out to you? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is back to trust, trusting myself that I'll find a way. And also, I really love like the older I am and thinking back of all my different experiences and realizing that, you know, I have this repertoire of either talents or knowledge or experiences that give me that confidence that I can try things or or sign up for something or just go for it. So that's that's a good feeling, confidence. And um also being able to do things that feel really important to me. Like I said, grow food for one, spend time outside. Those are big ones. Yeah. That's great. Thanks for sharing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something else I know that you wanted to talk about was the truth and reconciliation program that you're involved with. And yeah, maybe you could explain to people uh, maybe how you got involved in it for, to start off with and then how your involvement has unfolded. Yeah, that's a good way because I'm pretty new to it compared to the duration of the group. There's a Truth and Reconciliation Circles on Sidaeus, which is the name in Sintrothen, um, that evolved several years ago. It's a circle. And I joined a couple years ago when I was working from home more, and so I was on the computer, <laughs> and they were Zoom calls, and there was, um, people were sharing books, people were sharing about their learning related to things that came out after the, the commission. So we didn't always have awareness of different events that took place or ways people were treated, Indigenous people were treated or current events. So, um, people were sharing books, and then, then we started to meet in person again when that was possible. And we've sort of evolved into, um, like it's very uh, a supportive and open environment for people to, I don't know how to express it, but sort of share their things they didn't know <laughs> in a way and try to do things differently as we move forward once we have this knowledge. It's like coming out of the, the cave. Plato's cave, it's like, well, there's some other way to be. We don't have to continue on with these patterns. And last year when the the major floods happened, the nation in the Nicola Valley was really impacted and the circle was meeting online and we just were feeling we wanted to do something to help because there was just overwhelming troubles all over the place and it was a flood. And, and so um, we decided that we would form a separate circle like a healing circle to sort of send healing energies to those people. And hopefully that would um, have an impact. And people really liked the concept of getting together to sort of to explore more. Like we didn't want to take on, adopt the Kusainich culture because that's not our culture, but we're realizing that all of our settler ancient cultures relate back to earth-based ways of being and so if we could bring those in more like meeting for the cross quarter days and the equinox and the solstices so we formed a second circle called the seasonal circle and that had the first one this spring 
Um, so there's two circles happening. And the truth and reconciliation circle is, is now working towards truth and reconciliation. So we've, there's actually another group. It's kind of confusing, but there's several different groups going. And we are talking with, directly with the Sainich to get an input on how we would proceed with them, including them. For example, if we wanted to put a sign that says, Welcome to Sadeus, we would not just put up a sign that says, Welcome to Sadeus. We're going to invite the nations to guide us in how they would like it done because this is their unceded tra traditional homelands. Another idea would be learning more of the Sanchothan language. The language is deeply imbued with meaning and stories. And it's an oral history, oral tradition, and now it's written. So there's ways to learn pronunciations and learn some of the stories. But again, it's important to learn from the Sainich, from the, their. So there's different opportunities. So I feel it's growing from just people learning about things that happened that they might not have known of. And we all were, of course, impacted by the unmarked graves that were revealed, and so that sort of was an impetus, too, for people to learn more, and people want to work on healing, is the short version. What made you decide to get involved in that? What was it that really sparked? Well, again, I was drawn. With Parks Canada, there was work with the Indigenous Nations, um, Sea Gardens Project, and Growing Together, and I had experience and exposure in a limited way, but very much of valuable times. If ever I was working with the nations, we held something called the Science and Culture Camps. We were bringing Western science, weaving it together with the traditional knowledge. And that was some of the best times of the year, those two days that we were with the youth and the elders. And, and then Parks Canada did their Parks Canada thing. And like my family, I'm a second generation or first generation Canadian, depending if it's my father or mother's side. And people know of the stories that go back so far here. And, and, and the Sainis just have a small area now on Pender at Quininuk, which is right beside Poets. And for some, it's very hard to come here. So if I can do things that make them feel welcome to come anytime to their homelands, those are some of the actions we're trying to do, and we're trying to do it in the best spirit we can. At the same time, not being aware of all the cultural protocol and the sensitivities that can arise. So it feels really important to me. And my mom was interested in anthropology, so this is in the 70s, 80s, and there was different views back then, but she was introduced me slightly to the fact that there were residential schools, for example. And so I had this awareness and I learned a lot through art history of Indian Act implications and, and injustices and such, but it was just sort of more in the background for me. So this is really a way I can be involved and it feels like really meaningful work, not work, but action, action, reconciliation, action. Yeah. So with my property, I'm, my goal is to grow as many native plants as I can before I die. That's the simple goal. And that will maybe be part of the healing, heal the land and such. So, 
And if part of what you're saying resonates with people out there, how can they get involved with uh, Um, a Truth and Reconciliation Circle? Well, we meet, we don't meet in December, but we meet every month on the third Wednesday. And it's, there's usually a a little write-up in the Pender Post. Mm -hmm. It's pretty low-key. I take care of the email invite list, so if people want to get on the list, there's a, a notice that we're having a meeting. Yeah. And then the seasonal circle, same thing. People can reach out to me. And if they were to attend a circle, what could they expect if they if they went to that circle in um, January? Well, the Truth and Reconciliation Circle, the, we had one in October that Mary led, and it was um, one of her friends that she knows through where she used to live in the interior. His name is Dennis Saddleman, and he's a poet. And she um, presented his story that relates to the residential schools and how he worked through poetry, but he had quite a difficult story to tell. So she shared that and then shared a clip from when he was making his testimony to the commission. And then we um, had time for reflection. So it's, it is a sharing. Uh, it's a time people might feel vulnerable or, or even things come up they weren't expecting. Um, but it's, it's geared to be a safe place or a, like in the, in the tradition of a circle, like things stay in the circle. We don't talk about outside of specific events. Mm-hmm. And in general, yeah, it's like usually about a dozen or more people that come. So. Yeah. yeah. An opportunity to uh, just give some energy and awareness to mm-hmm. the fact that there are people here before us. There's a, a, a long, long history. Well, they're still here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And they're, you know, like, there's a housing crisis on many levels, but for Indigenous peoples, they're they're still bound by the Indian Act and all that, that that matters. So they would like to be in their homelands and they they feel very responsible for caring for them so having access is super important and having people understand their worldview is sacred so yeah it's a good time for open up that well there you go if anybody listening is interested in uh getting involved with that and maybe starting off with attending a circle and um see what happens there that sounds like a, a lovely experience and opportunity Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks, Madeline. Is there anything else that uh, you wanted to share uh, tonight? Well, I I don't think so. <laughs> we covered a lot of ground. I think there's a lot of. We went into the spirit world and into the earth. <laughs> I think that might be what I have to say. Okay. Yeah. Thank uh, you, Chris. Ah, Madeline, isn't she great? That was so much fun to do that interview. We did it when it was dark outside and we had all the lights turned down low and drinking some great licorice tea. And man, that was really fun. And Madeline is a pretty close friend of my wife and I get to interact with Madeline quite a lot, but not quite like that. And that's why these podcasts are so incredible to do is because I feel really fortunate and thankful that I'm given the opportunity to ask questions to people and they respond back with very thoughtful answers. So again, thank you to Madeline for opening up about so many things in her life. And I really hope that you got as much out of that interview as I did, because I found that to be quite inspiring. 
Stay tuned for more podcasts coming up as the weeks go by. Got more of these recorded, so I've got more coming out. And like I said at the beginning of the podcast, if you would like to purchase a calendar made by my wife, there's a link in the description. So that's genevajacobsart.com. You can go there. I would like to say thank you to Ben McConkie for providing the theme music for this show. And thank you for listening. Until next time.